Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And I'll read the first 11 verses of Romans 6. Here we have the words of the Apostle Paul. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's look to God and ask once again for his help as we come to the ministry of the word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the great Savior that your word proclaims to us, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We sang of his glory along with the words of the angels way back when he was born in Bethlehem. And we also sang about how every blessing that we receive comes to us only in him and through him and because of him. Help us to learn more about what your word teaches us about that great salvation through Jesus Christ and our union with him through faith. And we ask this, in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, it was a few weeks back when I began chapter 6 of Romans. I've preached on a couple of different topics since then. Uh, but I, I, I want to mention that the end of verse 5, which we focused on for a few weeks, is similar to the beginning of chapter 6 of Romans. And the similarities would be these, that uh, in some of the doctrines or themes that we see there, 
they're sort of carried on into Romans chapter 6. In Romans 5, there was a focus in the last half of the chapter from verses 12 to 21 on the two heads of mankind. One is Adam, one is Christ. And that theme is continued, we could say, into chapter 6 in that it focuses not on Adam anymore, but it focuses on Christ and the blessings that come through him. And then also in chapter 5, I highlighted the fact that there are these two different realms that go along with the two heads. There's the one head, Adam, and the realm uh, that he dwells in or that we dwell in uh, with him as our head as we come into this world as sinners has to do with sin and condemnation and death. But then there's another realm that has been introduced by the second Adam, the second head of mankind, that is all those who are saved, and that's Christ. And his realm or the complex of realities that are found in his realm, if you will, are righteousness, justification, and life. And so those latter things are continued into chapter 6. And then also there's some similarity. It struck me this week as I was preparing for this message with the arrangement or the structure of chapter 6 compared to chapter 5. What we saw in chapter 5 was there was an interweaving of ideas and subjects. There was back and forth. Paul would talk about Adam being like this and then Christ being like this. Then he'd go on back and make some similar statements again. Adam is this, but Christ is this. He'd change the wording a little bit, but he was making the same point. And similarly, with the blessings that are found in Christ, in contrast to the condemnation that is found in Adam. And he'd be making statements that are similar, but just changed a little bit to really, in a sense, hammer his point home. Well, we see the similar thing in chapter 6. In chapter 5, it was Christ and Adam, similarities and contrasts. With chapter 6, it's Christ and believers, and the similarity between what Christ did and what Christ experienced as the Messiah and as the Savior of his people, and then what we experience following what Christ experienced. So just to get chapter 5 again in your mind and refresh your what we saw about chapter 6 so far, and because it's been, I don't know if it was a whole month, but around a month, since I preached on this chapter, I'll begin with a review of verses 1 through 3. Our focus today, if you will, will be on verses 4 through 7, but I'll begin with a review. It won't be that brief a review, but it won't just be a repetition of what I said last time. The headings will be the same, but what I say under those headings will be different. I say that for your benefit uh, so you don't fall asleep until we get to the new material. So I st- we started out with verse 1. I called it a likely but bad question. After Paul went through what we saw in chapter 5, especially think of the statement um, beginning in verse 18 and going down through verse 21, where Paul said, Therefore, as through one man's offense, that's Adam's sin, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, 
Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And then verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, sin increased because of the law, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So because of Adam, sin reigns over all men. Because of Christ, life reigns. Grace reigns for all those who are his. And Paul makes this contrast at the end of verse 20 where sin abounded Grace abounded much more. In other words, grace is more powerful than sin. Grace does good, whereas sin works evil and condemnation and death. And not only that, but there's a sense in which the more sin that there was for Christ to overcome, the more grace abounds. The more it overflows, the more it is seen to be grace and goodness, and all of that. And so that's why this is a likely question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? In other words, if I'm a Christian and I sin more, that just means more grace will come. Seems to make sense. That's why I called it a likely question. It's a likely question because it's a natural question, at least coming from a sinner, or someone who's thinking in a foolish and sinful way. But I called it a bad question because a Christian should never ask such a question, and a Christian should never even think that way. So there's a likely but bad question. But then we looked at the answer, and the answer, I said, is in verses 2 and following. And we'll only go through verse 7 today, so think of the answer as coming in verses 2 through 7. And I said the first part of Paul's answer is just an immediate blanket statement and answer. And his answer is absolutely not. We should not continue in sin, having become Christians, so that grace may abound. That's perverted thinking. Absolutely not, he says in verse 2, because we died to sin. Notice his statement, certainly not. We should not continue in sin that grace may abound. We shouldn't continue in sin for any reason, let alone that one. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So his answer is absolutely not. We shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't live that way because we died to sin. In a sense, he's saying we shouldn't think like that because we're Christians. But he's even more explicit in his statement about the fact that we're Christians, and he's more emphatic, he says, we died to sin. Death to sin is one of the Bible's great metaphors, if you will, figures of speech for Christian conversion. If someone has become a Christian, we could say, well, he became a believer. We could say he repented. Or we could say it like this, he died to sin. He's become a Christian. It's a metaphor for conversion. Let's turn to another place in one of Paul's epistles where he uses that metaphor. It's Galatians chapter 6, right near the end of the epistle of Paul to the Galatians and verse 14. 
Here, here's what Paul says in that place. He says, but God forbid that I should glory or boast. Remember how we saw that word at the beginning of chapter 5 of Romans. God forbid that I should glory or rejoice except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, he doesn't use the word death to sin or that he died to sin. He uses a stronger, more graphic word to say the same thing. He says that by Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me or the world has died to me. And then he says, and I to the world. So when he says the world, I would say think of the two systems or the two complexes that I mentioned, and we noted these in Romans chapter 5. Adam introduced this complex, if you will, sin, condemnation, and death. That's the life of an unbeliever. That characterizes his life from beginning to end unless he repents and is saved through Jesus Christ. Sin, condemnation, and death. He breaks God's law. God's law condemns him for that. He's under a cloud of condemnation. As John said, the wrath of God abides on everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. And at the end, not only, not only is it true that during this whole life, he's in a state of death, spiritual death, but in the end, he's going to suffer the consequences of that eternal death in hell. That's what Adam introduced, and that's the life of the unbeliever, sin condemnation and death, and the Bible says that when Adam sinned, he gave that as a legacy, in a sense, to all his posterity, every human being born ultimately from Adam and Eve. Christ, on the other hand, Romans 5, introduced a different life, a different complex of realities, and as I mentioned it already, it is righteousness, justification, and life. If you're a believer in Christ, you do things differently. You don't just sin, you do the will of God. There's righteousness in your life. There's justification that comes freely through faith in Jesus Christ. And then there is life. Life in the here and now, as John said, that, or Jesus said in John's gospel, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And that means in the here and now. Because you will have rivers of living water flowing from within you, Jesus said. But also your life will end at the day of the resurrection in resurrected life, in glory forever in the new heavens and new earth. So Paul, let's take Paul's words now and put them in that light. By whom the world, that is that system of sin, condemnation and death has been crucified to me. When someone is converted to Christ, he leaves that realm of sin, condemnation, and death. And he's brought into a different realm, the realm of righteousness, justification, and life. So Paul here in Galatians 6.14 is expressing that reality in terms of dying or being crucified. And here is how he states it. First of all, 
He says, the world has been crucified to me. Let's go over to Philippians 3, verses 3 to 7 for a moment. Philippians 3, verses 3 through 7. Thinking of this idea of the world being crucified to me. If you're a Christian, you should think of your life in this way. You were not a Jew, and you were not a Jew who was a Pharisee, but Paul was, and so he puts it in those terms. And he says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He's talking about Christians. We're the true circumcision. Though, he says, I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. In other words, I have a right to think that way. If anybody does, circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he had the credentials as a true Jew. And then he goes on and says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. In other words, I was in the strictest religious sect of the Pharisees. And then concerning zeal, I had zeal, persecuting the church. He put Christians to death. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. At least that's how he thought of himself. But then he says, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. He says, that was, was my life. Now he looks at it as a, a negative thing. That was part of a life characterized by sin, condemnation, and death. But it was my life. That was my, what I loved. That's what I lived in. That described me. But he says, that all was crucified to me when I became a Christian. So, Let's put it this way, whatever we used to love, whatever we used to boast about as Christians, whatever was our, our food and our drink, the air we breathed in a spiritual sense, it's been crucified to us if we have become Christians so that we could look at it like this. Little alliteration here. My former habits, haunts, and homies no longer have the drawing power for me. They no longer have the grip on me they once did. They no longer have the influence on me that they used to have. They're dead. They've been crucified to me. And then in the last part of the verse there, of verse 14 of Galatians 6, he says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, I have been crucified to those things. I am no longer enslaved by them. In fact, I'm no longer attracted to them. I've died. So that's it. I have been crucified to the world. And that's the side of the picture that Paul is focusing on in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We have died to sin. That's what happened with Paul when he was converted. 
That's what happened to every Christian. That's why Paul puts it that way. How shall we, that is not only myself as an apostle and a former Pharisee and Jew, but we, all of us who are Christians, we have died to sin. How shall we live any longer in it? So the first answer to the question, a very categorical, straightforward answer is, should we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. All right, but Paul goes on with his answer because he wants to explain why that's true. So we come to verse 3, and again, here's his point. Those who have been baptized were baptized into Christ's death. So he adds a thought here. It's not just you, we've died to sin, but we've been baptized into Christ's death. Notice verse 3. Or do you not know... That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Why does Paul bring baptism in here? Why does he bring up the subject of baptism? He didn't mention it in verse 2. He didn't mention it in Galatians chapter 6. Nothing about baptism. Why does he bring it up here? Well, I mentioned last time that baptism, first of all, is a a symbol of conversion. And so it's a symbol of this metaphor of of conversion, dying to sin. Baptism is a symbol of that. Listen to what it says in Colossians 1 and verse 13. Think of what I said about the two realms. I think I had the sin and condemnation and death over here and um, righteousness, justification, and life over here. Paul said he had died to that. What's he alive to now? He's alive to this complex of blessings, righteousness, justification, life. Here's how it states it in Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's talking about that transferal talking about a transition, that Christian conversion is. Everything is new now. And if my old friends want to look for me anymore in my old haunts and with my old habits and with my old friends, they're not going to find me. Kind of like the language of Psalm 37 and verse 36. David talked about the wicked And he says, I I looked for the wicked, I couldn't find him. He says this, he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. And that's what our old life and the people in it could say about us. Some of them have said it about us. Sometimes when I've heard your testimonies, you said, my wife said to me when God saved me, you're no fun anymore. And your friends who used to hang out at the same bars or wherever it was. They said the same thing. This is the idea here. If you are baptized, that's a symbol of the fact that you live in a new world now. You went under the water. You died. You died to sin. You died to your old life. And you came out a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away. Everything is new now. That's the idea. Everything is different. And then a second thing about baptism is this. Baptism also pictures the doctrine of the believer's 
union with Christ. That's another thing baptism pictures. It, not just, it doesn't just picture death to what happened before and life to something completely new and better and great. But it pictures the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Notice verse 3. Or do you not know, we just read it already, but well, let me read it again. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we used to be identified with our old head, Adam, and our friends in sin and our sins. We are identified with all those things. Now we're identified not just with great blessings because of Christ. We're identified with Christ himself because as we sang in that hymn, every single blessing we have as Christians or that we will ever receive comes to us in Christ and because of Christ. Comes to us because we are united to Christ. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. In other words, when we were saved, that's what was happening. We were being united to Christ. And remember, that's pictured in baptism. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, what Paul is saying this. There's something that happened to Jesus Christ when he was on this earth that is similar to what happens to you when you are converted when you come to believe in Jesus Christ. When Christ was on this earth and when he did the greatest part of his work to save his people from their sins, it was while he was hanging on the cross outside of Jerusalem. In other words, that was a very traumatic, remember how he prayed when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me if that's possible, it was a very traumatic, but also a very transformative event. He died to wipe out all the sins and the guilt of all his people. That's what happened in his death. He was experiencing the wrath of God poured out upon him in the place of you if you're a Christian, so it will never have to be poured out on you in hell. That's what was happening. And Paul says that when you become a Christian, something is happening that's a parallel to that. It's not exactly that. You don't die for anybody's sins. You don't save anybody from their sins, but you do die in relationship to sin. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 2, we died to sin. That is when we were converted. And baptism is a picture of that. Going down under the water is like being buried with Christ. Verse 4 says that, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Something very traumatic, if you will, but also transformative because you're raised to newness of life. That's the idea. And Paul says, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You are baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death. Remember what I said last time. Maybe you don't remember it. I'll refresh your memories. I said, we know union with Christ in a spiritual sense from way back before we ever existed. In fact, the Bible says before the world existed, 
You were chosen in him, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. You were chosen in him. There's that language, union with Christ. Before the foundation of the world. And that's what the hymn we sang was about. And if you notice the heading of it, the heading of that whole section was election, the doctrine of election. Chosen in Christ. So union with Christ for a Christian goes way, way back, if you will. But it also happens on the cross. Kind of like when it says in Romans 5 that when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. We died in him because we sinned in him. What was happening to him and what was done by him was happening to us. And it's the same way when Christ was hanging on the cross. Again, you had not come into existence. As we like to say, you weren't even a, 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 a gleam or what is it, a gl- uh, whatever it was in your father's eye yet. You didn't exist, but in Christ, you were joined to him. In Christ, because what he did, he did for you. But that's not when you come to experience it, and neither do you come to experience it when you're born into this world. You're born into this world a sinner. But when you are saved and you put your faith in Christ and you confess your sins and ask him to forgive you, that's when you enter experientially into union with Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about here, and that's why I keep using that language of conversion. That's what this is picturing. All right, so the answer to Paul's question, should we sin that grace abounds? Verse 2's answer, absolutely not. The answer of verse 3 is no, because we, were, we who were baptized were baptized into Christ's death. As it says in verse 2, we died to sin. Now three, the third part of the answer And it's this. I just stated it last time. Now I'm going to expound verses 4 through 7 here. The point now is we, that is the baptized, we could say the believing Christians, we, if we were baptized into Christ's death, we were thus buried and also raised. I've already been using that terminology and explaining that that, um, metaphor, that figurative language. So now let's look at it in verses 4 through 7. So let's notice three things. And the first thing we want to notice is our spiritual union with Christ is lived out in our conversion and our Christian life. So when you're converted, that's when you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you become a new creature. That's our conversion. And then our Christian life is all of your life in this world after that. So here's the heading. Our spiritual union with Christ is lived out. In other words, we kind of do what he did when he lived and when he died and when he rose again. We live that out in our conversion, we die to sin, and our subsequent Christian life. Let's see how that is, verses 4 through 7. Therefore, Paul says... We were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, 
that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So our spiritual union with Christ is lived out in our conversion and in our subsequent Christian life. The point is, just as Christ died and then was raised from the dead on the third day, it's also true about us. We die and then we're raised. Now, we could say that's true in this sense, that just as Christ suffered a literal physical death on the cross, he ended up in the grave for three days as a dead man, and then was resurrected to glory after that, that will happen with us. We'll die someday, unless we're here when Christ comes again. And we'll be put in the grave. And then when Christ comes on the heavens with a shout and the trumpet of the angel, we will rise again to glory. And we'll, our, our bodies of humiliation will be exchanged with glorious bodies described near the end of 1 Corinthians 15. That is a true thing. But here, it's not talking about that. Here it's talking about, as I said, conversion. Christ died on the cross, literally and physically, in conversion. We died to what? Sin. That's right. That's the death Romans 6 is talking about. And then it says that we will also be raised from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead, and so also we will be raised, but the, there's a ra rising from the dead that happens in conversion. And it's that we not only die to sin, but we have a new life now. We're dead to those things. We're alive to God in Jesus Christ. We are alive to righteousness and so on. So this is talking about conversion and the life is the life of holiness that we live here and now. Notice verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In other words, from the moment you're converted, you've already experienced your first resurrection, if you will. And so now you walk in newness of life. In other words, your life as a Christian is different from your life as a non-Christian. It's very different. Of course, if we think about the doctrine of, of sanctification, there's a huge change right when you're saved, but not only are you different now, but as time goes on, it's going to get better yet. You're going to get differenter and differenter <laughs> as time goes on. If you're a Christian... That's the Bible's teaching. But here, Paul is just focusing on that change of conversion pictured in baptism, mirroring what Christ went through. But it happens in conversion. The Bible does teach that Christ was raised in the resurrection, and we also will be raised in the last day. It talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15 especially verses 20 to 23. We won't take the time to turn there. But it says that Christ is the first fruits. And because of that, everyone who believes in him will be raised from the dead like he was in the first century when he comes again. But that's not the focus of Romans 6. The focus of Romans 6 is the resurrected life 
that every true Christian lives out for the remainder of his earthly life. That's Paul's focus here. Verse 4 again, Even so, we also, in imitation of Christ, as a mirror of what he did when he died and rose, we do that in our life now. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6 at the end, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. The imitation of what happened with Jesus when he died and rose again, that imitation of his pattern that he set for us comes in this life in our walking in righteousness and obedience to God. So our spiritual union with Christ is lived out in our conversion and Christian life. The second point here under this heading that we, the baptized, were thus buried and also raised is this. Because our union with Christ is real, this combination of death immediately followed by life is absolutely certain to happen in our life. Union with Christ is a real thing. When Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 that you were, if you're a Christian, you were in him before the foundation of the world, is that just like a, a saying? Is that just an idea in an apostle's mind? Is that just a joke? No, it's a reality. It's in the mind of God, which makes it a very real thing. Our union with Christ is real. And Paul is saying, therefore, if you're really united to Christ through the work of God and the plan of God, then this combination of death immediately followed by life, in other words, death to sin and life to righteousness, then that is something that is absolutely certain to occur. We could say it's absolutely necessary. Let's read verse 5 again. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, if you're converted, you died to sin, but now Paul wants to focus on what happens after that. Remember the initial question of the passage, should we sin that grace will abound? The answer is no. Here's another reason why. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. When Christ died, he was really dead. They lifted up his body. It was limp. He, it was a corpse. They rightly put it in the grave. It wasn't a mistake. He was dead. But after three days, he wasn't dead. He was alive. He lived and breathed. Walked around. Visited with the disciples. Then he ascended to heaven. So he, it wasn't that he died and then he just lay there dead. He died then he rose to newness of life. So this is what Paul's saying. If that happened with him, then certainly it's going to happen to us if we're united to him. Because just like with Adam, he sinned, sorry, we sinned. So if you're, united, if you're united to Christ, if he died, 
then you died in your conversion, but he didn't just lie there. So if you're a Christian, you don't just lie there and say, well, at least I don't go to the bar anymore. Don't ask much more of me. No, no. He died and he got up. And Paul's saying, you have to get up and walk in newness of life. And here he's saying in verse 5, that is absolutely going to happen. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, and if you're going to italicize and put in bold one word in this verse, here's the one to do it. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So it'll happen with every single Christian. If you're truly one of Christ's, you will walk in newness of life, as Paul says. You will live differently. Now, it will happen not perfectly in this life. As I said, there's, we'll get better and better. It's called progressive sanctification. The saints get holier and holier and holier as time goes on. It's not a perfect, um, this would be this direct, not a perfect upward plane, if you will, but you know, kind of like the stock market, over time it goes up, but it, look at there's hard days and there's better days and so on. That's sanctification. It happens not perfectly in this life. It happens not in every believer to the same degree as the best believer, the most obedient saint, the most holy saint, the most mature saint out there. It doesn't happen in everyone to the same degree, at the same pace. But here's Paul's point. It does certainly happen for everyone who is born again. And so people need to get it out of their minds when we say things, or when I as a preacher say something like this, or maybe I should just say when Scripture says that it's absolutely certain or necessary that this is going to happen, that it must happen that it will happen. That's the language Paul uses here, isn't it? Certainly, if we're really united to him, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We will walk in newness of life. We will live in a godly way. Certainly, that will happen. So you need to get it out of your minds when that kind of language is used. Hopefully, your response is going to be, well, that thought isn't in my mind. Let me finish it that that means legalism. It does not mean legalism to say that someone who has died with Christ and now is a believer will certainly live a godly life. That's not legalism. It's not saying that that person earns anything. I mean, there's a lot of texts like this. There's a whole chapter of it here that where I'm expounding right now. Or think of a text like Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, because this is basically what Paul is saying here, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In other words, you don't live a holy life and with a biblical definition of what that means. You'll never see God. Not in glory. You'll see him in the judgment and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. This is an important thing. Some people, I think, want to treat those texts like they're not there. 
Sadly, people who want to treat those texts like they're not there have been taught that way. Generally speaking, they've been taught to think that way. But do you see what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 6? He's saying that realizing you're saved by grace doesn't mean that sin is okay. Isn't that how the chapter starts? Should we say then let us sin that grace may abound since we understand grace now, how great it is? It's all because of Christ. It's not because of us. It's not because of me. It's all because of Christ. And in fact, the more sins that are overcome by his grace, the more grace that means there is. So shouldn't I just sin more or at at the very least just not worry about sin? He's saying that realizing you're saved by grace doesn't mean it's okay to sin, let alone good to sin. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't really matter. After our passage, Paul's going to go on and say things like he does in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. You shouldn't obey the lusts that are still there. He'll talk about those in Romans 7. You should mortify them, kill them. Verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, when you think of the way you used to live and you say, thank God, he He killed me in relation to those things, and he killed those things in relation to me. But you have to admit, I'm not completely dead in terms of remaining sin. You know, there are actually some things in me that are still attracted to those things. So he says, when you come to your computer and you want to spend time going back to your old habits, think this way, verse 13. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Your fingers in terms of what buttons you push. Your brain in terms of what things you think about. Your eyes in terms of what things you look at or any other members of your body. That's what he's saying. It's not legalism. It's Paul. And I say that because if, if you don't understand anything Paul teaches and everything he teaches, you don't understand grace because that's where really we've learned about it. He told us everything about what Jesus did and how it's grace, a free gift. So we, we the baptized, were buried and also raised First, our union with Christ is lived out in our conversion in Christian life. Second, our, because our union with Christ is real, this combination of death immediately followed by life is absolutely certain, or we could say necessary. And then the third thing under this heading is sin's mastery has been ended. Our bondage to it is abolished. That's verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, go back to that language of Galatians 6 now, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that's conversion, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed 
from sin. I'll say more about this next time I come and preach because you have some parallel statements in verse 9 especially and, and really, really all of verses 8 through 11. So we'll come back to it. But for the moment, notice how Paul comes down and concludes in this first half of Romans 6 with the statement of verse 14. He, it's following from what we see in verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And then in verse 14 he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Some people interpret that this way. You're not under law, you're under grace. You don't have to worry about what the law says anymore. Isn't that wonderful? That's the Christian life. You're not under law, you're under grace. And he says, for sin shall not have a dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. And they interpret it this way. So no matter what you do, sin is not going to kill you in the end. You're still going to be welcome to glory. That's not what Paul's saying. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Go back to these other statements. He who has died has been freed from sin. In other words, you don't go presenting your members to sin anymore if you're a Christian. And that's the way you live because sin doesn't have dominion over you. You died to it. A radical change has happened. You're not under law but under grace. In other words, you're not in that old complex of life. Sin condemnation because of the law and death. But you're in this life now. You're under grace, which is characterized by righteousness, justification, and life, walking in newness of life. Sin's mastery has been ended. Our bondage to it has been abolished. We could picture it in terms of war, when you are converted and become a Christian, it's like a war. I'm going I'm to give some examples of some modern wars. And so in, I'm doing this strictly for illustrative purposes. Don't take any kind of political views out of what I say or read them into what I say, all right? These are just wars that have happened um, in our country's history and they will resonate with you if you know about them. I think a kind of a war that could be likened to a Christian conversion and what life is like on the battlefield, that is, their life after it, would be wars like... Our civil war in this country, war between the states, and World War II, especially thinking, I'm thinking right now of the Pacific Theater. The wars weren't just won. They were won in devastating ways. The war, in a sense, was almost over, and then General Sherman made his march through Georgia down to Savannah, and after that, I mean, that war was over. Similarly, World War II, the um, Allied powers were winning in the Pacific. And again, whatever you think about this event, when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima or Hiroshima, it was over. Not everyone was dead, 
But those enemies that were conquered after those events at the end would never live to regroup and fight again. It just would not happen. That's what our conversion is like. Every enemy is not dead. But like Paul says, a real war has happened. Real death has occurred. And you are no longer under the dominion of sin. Does fighting still happen? Yes, we'll see it in Romans 7. But it's not like some other wars, like Vietnam, where it was never fought to be won. And as soon as the troops from the West flew out of Vietnam, I mean, it was over for the South Vietnamese. It was, I mean, from that moment, it was a communist nation ruled by the Viet Cong. I have a son and a nephew who served in Afghanistan 10 or 12 years ago. And both of them used to say to me that as soon as we leave, this is going to be back to just what it was before with the Taliban. Those wars are not pictures of Christian conversion. The other wars are. That's kind of what it is like with a Christian in sin when the Christian is converted. And so that leads to my first practical point, and I have just one other one. My first one is this. Every Christian has died to sin. Now that's as basic a truth as you can get out of Romans chapter 6. There's a sense in which that's the truth we should carry away from here. It's at the root of it. We could say union in Christ is the root. But every Christian has died to sin. And so my main message for this morning is this. To you as a Christian, don't sell yourself short. Don't think this way. I'm a Christian, but... There's too many Christians think that way. Don't sell yourself short. You bemoan the fact that the world still has drawing power. That you still feel attraction to the world my point here is this. I already described for you that real Christians have that happen in their life. Don't conclude from that that you can't be a Christian. I know people who do that. Don't do that. Try looking at the big picture. Try looking at it from an objective standpoint. Let's just take the typical day like this, a Lord's Day. Look at the big picture. Whatever is going on in your life, yeah, well, I have battles against sin. You don't know how I sinned this past week. I mean, it's just shameful. Probably is. But look at it this way. Here we are on the Lord's Day. You're here in God's house. Despite whatever sins you've committed, whatever sins you still feel in your heart, you're not at MetLife Stadium. You're not at the mall. You're not at the bar. You're not at the house of ill repute. You're not drinking and gambling with your friends. Maybe you used to do that every weekend. You're not. You're not even hiking on your favorite trail or whatever other thing you might feel like doing on a Sunday afternoon, just waking up late and sitting in your living room with a cup of coffee and a newspaper. You're not. 
You're sitting here in the house of God with God's people and you frankly want to be here and it's because you want to be here that you have been in your seat here for the last 20 years or 15 years or 10 years or whatever it is. You know what that's called? It's called fruit. Unless you're like one of those worshipers that were rebuked in Malachi and it was just an outward show and you're really just wishing you were somewhere else. That's just one little example. And you might say to me, well, you know, Pastor Chansky, <clears throat> when I feel that way and get so negative about myself, one of the people I blame for it actually is you. Because it's when you preach on these things like this, that this is what a Christian will be, and this is what a Christian must be, that I, that's when I start feeling that way. Well, let me just give a short answer. If you say that to me, I will say, I am not offended by that. And the reason I'm not offended is this, because I also come here. I've been coming here every Sunday for the last 15 years. And I've been coming to some sound church to hear the gospel preached every Sunday for the last 40 years. And the reason I keep coming like that is that I still have ways of thinking and ways of acting that are wrong. And so I want to come here and get cut. Like a dead limb gets cut off a tree. That's healthy for the tree. I want dead limbs to be cut off of me. I come here to get sanded and scraped like you have to do to the side of a house in order to paint it and make it look a lot better. I come here to get shaven with a sharp razor like sometimes I take stubble off the side of my face because I don't want it there when I stand up to preach. And those things, in a spiritual sense, happen when I come here. And so... God enabling me, I'm going to keep coming here every Sunday till I die. Or God takes me to some other church and then I'm going to die. And the other thing I would say in answer to that, that you, Pastor Chansky, are the one who makes me feel this way, is this. I don't really want to take credit for it when you get convicted of sin. I hope that it is genuinely the work of the Holy Spirit of God when that happens. Because He wants to see you sanctified and He wants to see you made more like Jesus Christ than I do. And He is far, far better at it. But the bottom line is this, seeing that all true Christians have died to sin is not a reason to check into the hotel called Doubting Castle. It's a reason to go to the cross. It's the reason to go to Jesus Christ for fresh cleansing from your sins and for power to do His will, to walk in newness of life. It's reason to renew your zeal and your determination to run in the ways of God's commandments. 
His grace is sufficient, my brother, my sister, even for you with your difficult life and your many sins. His grace is sufficient in the sense of grace, of forgiveness of all your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And his grace is sufficient in another sense of the use of that word, like we heard last Sunday night, in terms of power to do the will of God. You and I don't have that natively. Christ gives it to us. So take heart from this, brethren. Take heart from this. Expect much from yourself. That's the point of Paul in verse 14 there. You're a Christian? You're united to Christ? Then sin shall not have dominion over you. Will it still be a fight? Yes. But you're on the winning side. And God has given you what it takes because you're not under law, but under grace. The God of heaven has done a work in you if you are his child. The King of kings, Jesus Christ and the Lord of lords, has taken you and made you his own. And he has only begun what he's going to do in you ultimately. He's going to bring his work to completion and no one can stop him. And he will keep making you holy and he will bring you to glory. Let me quote a a hymn of Charles Wesley. Now, he was a true Arminian, but he wrote better than his theology. He said this, He wills that I should wholly be. Who can withstand his will? Rhetorical question. Nobody. The counsel of his grace in me, he surely shall fulfill. And then I'm I'm just hit my limit that I was aiming for, but let me just say the last thing, and I'll say it briefly. The second thing, in terms of a practical application, it's a doctrine, but it it should be applied to our lives. Every Christian is joined to Jesus Christ. That's why all these things I just said are true. So you think of it in terms of chapter 5. You're weak. Well, you have a head. You have a champion. He's the one that does all that needs to be done. It's not about you and everything you can do as such a great and godly person. No, you have a head, you have a champion, and he has done it all. Now it's just, it's all over, as they say, but the shouting, but you have to shout. And now we could look at it this way. Because you're in Christ, you're just along for the ride. Now you do have to think and you do have to fight, but you see what I'm saying And why is that true? Because he has given you life now. And he will give you life in the day of resurrection. And you are stuck to him. You're in him. You're united to him. You're stuck to him. It's union with Christ. And to anticipate chapter 8, nothing can separate you from your covenant head. And I won't list all those things that it says can't do that. Nothing can separate you from your covenant head, from your champion, from the one to whom you are forever joined. And if you are not a believer, you can become joined to him as well. The scripture says that. It says to everyone who believes in him, that person will never be put to shame but he will also find new life in Jesus Christ. 
May God open your eyes and your heart today to find life in him because there is life in no other. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take these things and write them on our hearts. Help us to believe all that the scripture says about all of the Christian life, conversion and beyond, and resurrection and glory as well. And let us live as those who have begun to walk on a narrow way and are headed for life. And may we attain it not because of ourselves, but because of our great head and champion, Jesus Christ. And may we trust in him and believe that we will attain glory solely because of him and because of his grace in uniting us to himself. And we ask it in his name. Amen.